0: Section 16 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K Hand. Shakespeare, or the Poet, Part 2. The Shakespeare Society have inquired in all directions, advertised the missing facts, offered money for any information that will lead to proof, and with what result? Besides some important illustration of the history of the English stage, to which I have adverted, They have gleaned a few facts touching the property and dealings in regard to the property of the poet. It appears that from year to year he owned a larger share in the Black Friars' theatre, its wardrobe and other appurtenances were his, that he bought an estate in his native village with his earnings as writer and shareholder, that he lived in the best house in Stratford, was entrusted by his neighbours with their commissions in London, as of borrowing money and the like, that he was a veritable farmer. About the time when he was writing Macbeth, he sues Philip Rogers in the Borough Court of Stratford for thirty-five shillings ten pence for corn delivered to him at different times, and in all respects appears as a good husband with no reputation for eccentricity or excess. He was a good-natured sort of man, an actor and shareholder in the theatre, not in any striking manner distinguished from other actors and managers. I admit the importance of this information. It was well worth the pains that have been taken to procure it. But whatever scraps of information concerning his condition these researches may have rescued, they can shed no light upon that infinite invention which is the concealed magnet of his attraction for us. We are very clumsy writers of history. We tell the chronicle of parentage, birth, birthplace, schooling, schoolmates, earning of money, marriage, publication of books, celebrity, death and when we have come to an end of this gossip no ray of relation appears between it and the goddess born and it seems as if had we dipped at random into the modern plutarch and read any other life there it would have fitted the poems as well it is the essence of poetry to spring like the rainbow daughter of wonder from the invisible to abolish the past and refuse all history malone warburton dice and collier have wasted their oil The famed theatres, Covent Garden, Drury Lane, The Park, and Tremont have vainly assisted. Betterton, Garrick, Kemble, Keane, and MacReady dedicate their lives to this genius. Him they crown, elucidate, obey, and express. The genius knows them not. The recitation begins. One golden word leaps out immortal from all this painted pedantry and sweetly torments us with invitations to its own inaccessible homes i remember i went once to see the hamlet of a famed performer the pride of the english stage and all i then heard and all i now remember of the tragedian was that in which the tragedian had no part simply hamlet's question to the ghost what may this mean that thou dead course again in complete steel revilest thus the glimpses of the moon that imagination which dilates the closest he writes into the world's dimension crowds it with agents in rank and order and quickly reduces the big reality to be the glimpses of the moon these tricks of his magic spoil for us the illusions of the green room can any biography shed light on the localities into which the midsummer night's dream admits me did shakespeare confide to any notary or parish recorder sacristan or surrogate in stratford the genesis of that delicate creation? The forest of Arden, the nimble air of Scone Castle, the moonlight of Portia's villa, the antres' vast and deserts' idol of Othello's captivity? Where is the third cousin or grand-nephew, the chancellor's file of accounts or private letter that has kept one word of those transcendent secrets? In fine, in this drama, as in all great works of art, In the Cyclopean architecture of Egypt and India, in the Phidian sculpture, the Gothic masters, the Italian painting, the ballads of Spain and Scotland, the genius draws up the ladder after him, when the creative age goes up to heaven and gives way to a new age which sees the works and asks in vain for a history. Shakespeare is the only biographer of Shakespeare, and even he can tell nothing except to the Shakespeare in us that is, to our most apprehensive and sympathetic hour. He cannot step from off his tripod and give us anecdotes of his inspirations. Read the antique documents extricated, analyzed, and compared by the assiduous Dice and Collier. And now read one of these sky sentences, Aerialites, which seem to have fallen out of heaven, and which not your experience but the man within the breast has accepted as words of fate. And tell me if they match. If the former account in any manner for the latter or which gives the most historical insight into the man. Hence, though our external history is so meager, yet with Shakespeare for biographer, instead of Aubrey and Rowe, we have really the information which is material, that which describes character and fortune, that which, if we were about to meet the man and deal with him, would most import us to know. We have his recorded convictions on those questions which knock for answer at every heart, on life and death, on love, on wealth and poverty, on the prizes of life and the ways whereby we come at them, on the characters of men and the influences, occult and open, which affect their fortunes, and on those mysterious and demoniacal powers which defy our science and yet which interweave their malice and their gift in our brightest hours. Who ever read the volume of the sonnets without finding that the poet had there revealed, under masks that are no masks to the intelligent, the lore of friendship and of love, the confusion of sentiments in the most susceptible and at the same time the most intellectual of men what trait of his private mind has he hidden in his dramas one can discern in his ample pictures of the gentleman and the king what forms and humanities pleased him his delight in troops of friends in large hospitality in cheerful giving let timon let warwick let antonio the merchant answer for his great heart So far from Shakespeare's being the least known, he is the one person, in all modern history, known to us. What point of morals, of manners, of economy, of philosophy, of religion, of taste, of the conduct of life, has he not settled? What mystery has he not signified his knowledge of? What office, or function, or district of man's work has he not remembered? What king has he not taught state, as Talma taught Napoleon? What maiden has not found him finer than her delicacy? What lover has he not outloved? What sage has he not outseen? What gentleman has he not instructed in the rudeness of his behavior? Some able and appreciating critics think no criticism on Shakespeare valuable that does not rest purely on the dramatic merit, that he is falsely judged as poet and philosopher. I think as highly as these critics of his dramatic merit, but still think it secondary. He was a full man who liked to talk a brain exhaling thoughts and images which seeking vent found the drama next at hand had he been less we should have had to consider how well he filled his place how good a dramatist he was and he is the best in the world but it turns out that what he has to say is of that weight as to withdraw some attention from the vehicle and he is like some saint whose history is to be rendered into all languages into verse and prose into songs and pictures and cut up into proverbs so that the occasion which gave the saints meaning the form of a conversation or of a prayer or of a code of laws is immaterial compared with the universality of its application. So it fares with the wise Shakespeare and his book of life. He wrote the airs for all our modern music. He wrote the text of modern life, the text of manners. He drew the man of England and Europe, the father of the man in America. He drew the man and described the day and what is done in it he reads the hearts of men and women their probity and their second thought and wiles the wiles of innocence and the transitions by which virtues and vices slide into their contraries he could divide the mother's part from the father's part in the face of the child or draw the fine demarcations of freedom and of fate he knew the laws of repression which make the police of nature and all the sweets and all the terrors of human lot lay in his mind as truly but as softly as the landscape lies on the eye and the importance of this wisdom of life sinks the form, as of drama or epic, out of notice. Tis like making a question concerning the paper on which a king's message is written. Shakespeare is as much out of the category of eminent authors as he is out of the crowd. He is inconceivably wise, the others conceivably. A good reader can, in sort, nestle into Plato's brain and think from thence, but not into Shakespeare's. We are still out of doors." For executive faculty, for creation, Shakespeare is unique. No man can imagine it better. He was the farthest reach of subtlety, compatible with an individual self, the subtlest of authors, and only just within the possibility of authorship. With this wisdom of life is the equal endowment of imaginative and of lyric power. He clothed the creatures of his legend with form and sentiments as if they were people who had lived under his roof and few real men have left such distinct characters as these fictions, and they spoke in language as sweet as it was fit. Yet his talents never seduced him into an ostentation, nor did he harp on one string. An omnipresent humanity coordinates all his faculties. Give a man of talents a story to tell, and his partiality will presently appear. He has certain observations, opinions, topics, which have some accidental prominence, in which he disposes to all exhibit. He crams this part and starves that other part, consulting not the fitness of the thing, but his fitness and strength. But Shakespeare has no peculiarity, no importunate topic, but all is duly given. No veins, no curiosities, no cow painter, no bird fancier, no mannerist is he. He has no discoverable egotism. The great he tells greatly, the small subordinately. He is wise without emphasis or assertion, he is strong as nature is strong, who lifts the land into mountain slopes without effort, and by the same rule as she floats a bubble in the air, and likes as well to do one as the other. This makes that equality of power in farce, tragedy, narrative, and love songs, a merit so incessant that each reader is incredulous of the perception of other readers. This power of expression, or of transferring the inmost truth of things into music and verse, makes him the type of poet that has added a new problem to metaphysics. This is that which throws him into natural history, as a main production of the globe, and as announcing new eras and ameliorations. Things were mirrored in his poetry without loss or blur. He could paint the fine with precision, the great with compass, the tragic and the comic indifferently, and without any distortion or favor. He carried his powerful execution into minute details to a hair point, finishes an eyelash or a dimple as firmly as he draws a mountain, and yet these, like nature's, will bear the scrutiny of the solar microscope. In short, he is the chief example to prove that more or less of production, more or fewer pictures, is a thing indifferent. He had the power to make one picture, Daguerre learned to let one flower etch its image on his plate of iodine and then proceeds at leisure to etch a million there are always objects but there was never representation here is perfect representation at last and now let the world of figures sit for their portraits no recipe can be given for the making of a shakespeare but the possibility of the translation of things into song is demonstrated his lyric power lies in the genius of the piece the sonnets though their excellence is lost in the splendour of the dramas are as inimitable as they and it is not a merit of lines but a total merit of the piece like the tone of voice of some incomparable person so is this a speech of poetic beings and any clause as unproducible now as a whole poem though the speeches in the plays and the single lines have a beauty which tempts the ear to pause on them for their euphemism Yet the sentence is so loaded with meaning and so linked with its foregoers and followers that the logician is satisfied. His means are as admirable as his ends. Every subordinate invention by which he helps himself to connect some irreconcilable opposites is a poem too. He is not reduced to dismount and walk because his horses are running off with him in some distant direction. He always rides. The finest poetry was first experience, but the thought has suffered a transformation since it was an experience. Cultivated men often attain a good degree of skill in writing verses, but it is easy to read through their poems, their personal history. Anyone acquainted with the parties can name every figure. This is Andrew and that is Rachel. The sense thus remains prosaic. It is a caterpillar with wings and not yet a butterfly. In the poet's mind, the fact has gone quite over into a new element of thought and has lost all that is exuvial. This generosity abides with Shakespeare. We say, from the truth and closeness of his pictures, that he knows the lesson by heart, yet there is not a trace of egotism. One more royal trait properly belongs to the poet, I mean his cheerfulness, without which no man can be a poet, for beauty is his aim. He loves virtue, not for its obligation, but for its grace. He delights in the world, in man, in woman, for the lovely light that sparkles from them. Beauty, the spirit of joy and hilarity, he sheds over the universe epicurus relates that poetry hath such charms that a lover might forsake his mistress to partake of them and the true bards have been noted for their firm and cheerful temper homer lies in sunshine chaucer is glad and erect and soddy says it was rumored abroad that i was penitent but what had i to do with repentance not less sovereign and cheerful much more sovereign and cheerful is the tone of shakespeare his name suggests joy and emancipation to the heart of men If he should appear in any company of human souls, who would not march in his troop? He touches nothing that does not borrow health and longevity from his festal style. And now, how stands the account of man with his bard and benefactor, when in solitude, shutting our ears to the reverberations of his fame, we seek to strike the balance? Solitude has austere lessons. It can teach us to spare both heroes and poets— and it weighs Shakespeare also, and finds him to share the halfness and imperfection of humanity. Shakespeare, Homer, Dante, Chaucer, saw the splendor of meaning that plays over the visible world, knew that a tree had another use than for apples, and corn another than for meal, and the ball of the earth than for tillage and roads, that these things bore a second and finer harvest to the mind, being emblems of its thoughts and conveying in all their natural history a certain mute commentary on human life shakespeare employed them as colors to compose his picture he rested in their beauty and never took the step which seemed inevitable to such genius namely to explore the virtue which resides in these symbols and imparts this power what is that which they themselves say he converted the elements which waited on his command into entertainments he was master of the revels to mankind Is it not as if one should have, through majestic powers of science, the comets given into his hand, or the planets and their moons, and should draw them from their orbits to glare with municipal fireworks on a holiday night and advertise in all towns, very superior pyrotechny this evening? Are the agents of nature and the power to understand them worth no more than a street serenade or the breath of a cigar? One remembers again the trumpet text in the Quran, The heavens and the earth and all that is between them, think ye we have created them in jest? As long as the question is of talent and mental power, the world of men has not his equal to show. But when the question is to life and its materials and its auxiliaries, how does it profit me? What does it signify? It is but a twelfth night, or midsummer night's dream, or winter evening's tale what signifies another picture, more or less? The Egyptian verdict of the Shakespeare societies comes to mind, that he was a jovial actor and manager. I cannot marry this fact to his verse. Other admirable men have led lives in some sort of keeping with their thought. But this man, in wide contrast, had he been less, had he reached only the common measure of the great authors, of Bacon, Milton, Tasso, Cervantes, we might leave the fact in the twilight of human fate. But that this man of men, he who gave to the science of mind a new and larger subject than had ever existed, and planted the standard of humanity some furlongs forward into chaos, that he should not be wise for himself, it must even go into the world's history that the best poet led an obscure and profane life, using his genius for the public amusement. Well, other men, priest and prophet, Israelite, German and Swede, beheld the same objects, they also saw through them that which was contained and to what purpose the beauty straightway vanished the red commandments all excluding mountainous duty an obligation a sadness as of piled mountains fell on them and life became ghastly joyless a pilgrim's progress a probation beleaguered round with doleful histories of adam's fall and curse behind us with doomsdays and purgatorial and penal fires before us and the heart of the seer and the heart of the listener sank in them it must be conceded that these are half views of half men the world still wants its poet-priest a reconciler who shall not trifle with shakespeare the player nor shall grope in graves with swedenborg the mourner but who shall see speak and act with equal inspiration for knowledge will brighten the sunshine right is more beautiful than private affection and love is compatible with universal wisdom. End of section 16